Hi, this is State Senator Jill P. Carter, and you are listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the best source of news and notes on Maryland politics and policy. The Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of Maryland Association of Counties. Hello, and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, today on the podcast, we're going to talk about property tax assessments and specifically how to assess improvements, which are new buildings, stuff like that, on agricultural land. And before our listeners yawn themselves to sleep, I do promise this is a fascinating policy topic. It's one that got a lot of attention during the last legislative session, and that's mostly because of the proliferation of agritourism or agritainment whichever you prefer, which we'll get into. But Michael, are you up for talking about property tax assessments on ag land? Oh, Kevin, you know me. I'm down for this. Honestly, to me, to some degree, you know, as we were putting together notes about talking about this, I'm like, this feels this feels like the good stuff, the old stuff. We were cutting our teeth a few years ago, sort of just getting into this podcast bracket and figuring out what kind of things to talk about. And we spent tons of times covering Kerwin stuff. But, you know, the commission was meeting and they're looking at education funding formulas and it had all this math and all these, you know, limitations and and constraints and other things like that. Let's run models for A, B, C, and D and stuff like that. We, we sort of got into a groove of getting, I don't know, like going full nerd on this sort of thing. And couple times we've asked listeners, is this too in the weeds? Is this too nerdy? And for the most part, listeners are like, no, we dare you to get too nerdy for us. We, we, we like this stuff. So anyway, this feels like the good stuff to me. I'm into it. Yeah, me too. And it is, again, a very interesting topic. It is one that got a lot of attention and I think will continue to get a lot of attention. Michael, there's an interim study to look at how the state assesses this kind of activity, agritourism. And so the timing does feel ripe. I agree. Kerwin really was the birth of this podcast. And this is another instance, I think, of, of us getting nerdy. And we like to talk about government catching up on how to handle new technology, new activities. I think this is a case as well when it comes to you know assessing property on agricultural land. So, Michael, let, let's start here. Let's talk about property tax assessments generally. Uniform and accurate assessments are the foundation of fair property taxation, right? Like that's where you start. I mean, that's the right place to start. Um, you know, local governments are number one revenues it, it, revenue source in Maryland, and this is the case in just about every state, is the property tax. And so we, we set a property tax rate and it's applied to the value of your property. When we talk about assessments, what we mean is someone setting the government determined value of your property for tax purposes. So we take that value, that assessment times the local tax rate, and that becomes your tax bill for the year. So getting that value correct through whatever process you have to is is sort of fundamental to doing tax policy wisely and fairly. And it, it leads to a weird thing, right? I mean, you know, this is like the, the oldest thing in the book is, as a homeowner, 
I want the value of my property to be high, right? I take care of my lawn and we take care of the, the, the landscaping and keep the house in good condition and so forth. And we hope that our neighbors do the same and so forth. So our community is attractive and our property is attractive. And I want the valuation of my property to be high, especially if I'm thinking about selling it. But then, you know, when the tax man comes around or when the the professional assessor comes around to value for tax purposes, I'm, you know, I'm putting my head down. Oh, shucks. You know, this isn't much. It's just, you know, humble little thing we got here. You sort of want a low valuation for tax purposes rather than for sale purposes. So we have like a weird cross motivation at work. Yeah. It's like, I don't have a finished basement. No, don't go inside. You know, <laughs> way, too, way too high. Right. But, but Maryland does do assessments the right way, Michael. And we've, we've talked about that probably here before and we talk about it a lot in the general assembly, but Maryland does it the right way when it comes to who does the assessing, right? Yeah, I, I think so. We're, we're a little unusual in this regard because if you looked around at other states, you'd find lots of places. I think the majority of places, it actually is the local government who's levying the tax is also effectively responsible for conducting the valuations for the assessments. And, and so you end up with, I, I, I don't love this analogy, but you end up with some sort of fox hen house problem that there have been issues in, in, in the history books in other places where the assessors were kind of leaned on by public officials saying, hey, you know, if, if this year's assessments were to bump up by a, by a certain amount, boy, that would be really great for our ability to fund your staff and your raises and the other things we want to do in city government or county government or whatever. We don't have that here. We have a state agency and their state employees who manage the assessment process. So all this valuation is done at the state level and the overwhelming share of property taxes are local revenues. So they're not the ones who really are the direct or even really indirect beneficiaries of increased assessments. That's probably for the best. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think that Maryland is one of only maybe a handful of states, as you said, that does it this way. We think it's the right way to do it. But Michael, let's get into a little bit more into the weeds and talk about just basically how you determine a proper assessment. What are the methods for doing that before we jump into you know what we're going to talk about and get to, which is assessments on ag land and how that, you know, dices things up a little bit and makes it difficult in some instances. Yeah, well, I don't think we want to get too deep here, but but there's there's a few nuts and bolts that I think have some value because we start getting into the process of determining what a given farm or a given piece of land that's in an agricultural district looks like. So you dial, dial back a couple of clicks. In general, um, Maryland law guides the assessment process and and sort of points toward three different ways of doing this. Among the three ways that you can come to a, a value of a property or the assessment, the easiest to understand is comparable sales. And so you know, homeowners are familiar with this. If you're shopping for a home or if you're looking to sell your home, you're working with a real estate agent and you're looking at the nearby market, everybody's familiar with this. Well, you know, the, the house down the street, sold for 325 this other one the next street over sold for 350 but that one's a little bit bigger you can do a little bit bit of arithmetic and come up with dollars per square foot or something like that and basically say that's what the market will bear that's what people are actually buying and selling so that's a pretty easy basis to come with a reasonable guess as to what a property that hasn't sold for some time is worth today right. so comparable sales 
probably the most you know, familiar and easy to understand. Just look at the market. Pretty good for homes because there happen to be a lot of comparability from one home to another. Other properties can get trickier. So businesses, sometimes the assessor needs to look at things like the property's ability to generate income. So you can basically say this, here's a, this is a spot that hosts a restaurant outside the shopping mall. And there aren't lots of comparable sales. So you don't have a market like that to look at, but you can take a look at the income producing potential of that property in that use and say, okay, well, if it generates that much income per year, then you can sort of capitalize that into that means its value in like a net present value for the property today is X. And you can do a little bit of arithmetic and come up with a good faith estimate based on income producing or profitability potential. And that's that's a widely accepted and understood way of, of valuing property. For some things, it's even trickier for bigger companies that have a lot of weird property that doesn't generate stuff, things like railroads and utilities and big companies like that. Sometimes what you might do is say, let's look at the valuation of the entire company and know that it is substantially due to its its ownership of bricks and mortar and land and various improvements and whatever train tracks or, or wires and cables and so forth. But if you look at the entire company, you might be able to say, well, what's, what's its, uh, a capitalized value of all of its shares of stock or its its total profitability. And then you break that down into pieces and, and assign that out to the share of the physical plant of the big company. That gets high end and complicated and, and it's for some special cases, but it's that middle tier. The idea of property that has the ability to generate income is sometimes the most uh, amorphous and most controversial in the how do you assess property, particularly commercial and income producing property. Right. And you can imagine why, right? You see fluctuations and year to year that could be different. But Maryland has also, I think, got it right when it comes to how we phase in, um, you know, and, and charge people their property taxes, right? So Maryland has a triennial process Every three years, your property gets assessed, and then you have a three-year phase-in schedule. So if you if you have to pay more in taxes, if your assessment went up, that's phased in over three years, and that does create stability and certainty for taxpayers and local governments. So I think Maryland has it right there, too. That's a primer on uh, property tax assessments in Maryland. And let's switch gears a little bit, talk about a specific kind of assessment. We teased it, agriculture. So, Michael, Maryland was the first state to formally adopt a policy that provides lower assessments on land actively devoted to farming or woodland uses. It's called the Agricultural Use Assessment, and it applies to farmland or woodland that meets specified criteria that is outlined in state law. Michael, why does Maryland do this? What's the point? Maryland, again, was an early adopter here, but but what is the point of this assessment and why is it so important? I think in the in the grand scheme, what Maryland is doing, I mean, first of all, you know, Public policy plays some role in this as well. We start with you ought to assess every piece of property in a fair way. What's it actually worth? And if you start there, then you say, well, we should vary from that in specific circumstances when there's a policy reason to do that. So if you think about a farm that's in active use, we're planting soybeans and corn or, or, you know, raising livestock and so forth on an actual in use farm. It, it certainly is possible that left to, 
to her own device as a professional assessor might come out to that property, look around and say, well, I see what kind of income you're making with this in ag use. But to be honest, if you were just to sell out to the condominium developers, you'd be able to make a whole lot more money on this land. So I might be professionally bound to say this land's highest and best use is in something other than its current use in agriculture. And so I need to assess it based on what it's really worth on the open competitive market. So in theory, you could be saddling farms with a tax bill that is, that's associated with a different kind of activity, a potentially more lucrative activity. And that's a weird public policy, right? Would you want to have assessors going out and telling all the farmers, we're going to tax you based on being condos, even though you're actually out there running a combine and, you know, harvesting, uh, harvesting corn. So we've remedied that by basically saying, as long as your agricultural property is in active use as a farm, we're going to basically ignore the usual evaluation process. And we'll just say, I think it's $100 per acre is in, in Maryland, the agricultural use assessment. Basically, it's an artificially low level to say we recognize that we want to keep agriculture here. We don't want to add to the pressures for them to get out of the farming business and into other things. And so for tax purposes, we're going to create a special class of land called agricultural use property. And when things are in that classification, if you're really farming, then we're not going to look at its highest and best use. We're not going to think, well, this could be a marina or something else. We're going to look at it. It's just a farm, 100 bucks an acre, run the tape, there's the number. Right. And that certainly makes sense. You don't want to price farmers out of the market. You want to preserve that farmland. It's super important. But Michael, there's no doubt that, you know, soaring fuel and feed and machine and fertilizer costs, et cetera, et cetera, that has inspired rural landowners across the state and across the country to begin searching for ways to supplement their incomes. So th there's another issue here, too. Right. And, and I guess that that would be like the 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 add on extra podcast here. No, I mean, so it's definitely true that being a farmer is a tough business and you'll have entire years where you just lose money because the crop is bad or the yield is weak or demand falls or whatever. So, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a tough business to be in, period. When you're trying to engage in best management practices and rotating crops and all these other things, it, it adds to the inputs that go into what you're trying to you know, generate with, with ag output, this probably could be an, an entire hour on its own. The pressures to take that beautiful flat land that's covered with soybeans today and instead cover it with silicon and turn your farm into a solar field where you can generate, you know, clean energy to to create a, a renewable source for all the folks who want to get, get that into their portfolio and, and that sort of thing. I mean, that's that's a big big topic, probably a separate conversation of its own, but the, the the pushes and pulls on folks who are in active true farming is difficult. And it leads to not just the wholesale thing of what let's shut down the farm and turn it into something else, but also what can we put onto our farm area where we can generate some direct income, not just from selling the bushels of corn, right? Right. So not selling out the full farm, not putting solar on the whole farm. That is a whole nother episode. But what we are seeing is increased interest in agritourism. And this is corn mazes to, to farm produced products like small scale wineries and breweries, uh, celebratory venues, culinary tourism. And the question there becomes, Michael, how do you assess these activities for property tax purposes? Because, you know, we've mentioned 
we're talking about active use farms, people who are in the farming business. But some of this stuff sort of blurs the lines between is this ag or is it not? And that's where things become gray. And that's what we want to get into a little bit, the meat of this podcast. Right. So that's the issue of the moment is for decades, Maryland has said, if you're in active agriculture, then you're entitled to sort of ignore the real income producing value of your property because we've, we're going to treat agriculture in a preferential way for this assessment purposes. So if that's our policy and harvesting corn or raising livestock is the intended beneficiary of that policy, then how far can you blur the edges of what is agriculture without kind of perverting the public policy behind giving it preferential treatment? So, you know, the idea of, hey, we're, we have, we're, we're harvesting fruit and then we generate jams and jellies, right? So we have things like that that's produced right here on this farm from the yield that we get from our, you know, we're, we're growing the raspberries right here. And then you can buy the raspberry jam in a little farm store. Okay. I don't know. I mean, that's going to pass my smell test as being sort of an accessory part of the farm, right? We haven't turned the farm into Farmco, some gigantic big business. It's a working farm. And if there's some, a little bit of extra revenue that comes from selling, you know, a, a farm stand on the corner where you're selling the raspberries themselves or even the raspberry jam that's made from it, that feels like it's an accessory to a working farm. So those activities, maybe that's within the definition of agricultural use and so forth. But I don't know, you use agricultural products for some high end stuff, right? Like we, we make wines and beers from, from plants that are, you know, that are, that are grown and cultivated here in Maryland. Agricultural areas, barns and so forth are beautiful places for events. If you want to have a, a concert or, or a wedding venue or, you know, you put a, put a hotel or a big B and B or all those sorts of things. You know, what about that big brewery and maybe a restaurant to go with it? How many of those things can you add on the site of an active farm? Before the active farm ceases to be just that quaint little, let's grow some soybeans and, and ignore our income producing potential. And that is the question, right? And now yeah. let, let's get into it because that, that we're now at the point where I think this gets super interesting. And there was a bill last session and lying in the background of all of this seems to be the conduct of state assessors when they evaluate this kind of property. So again, an active farm that receives an ag land assessment, but it does have some additional commercial activities. The supporters of a bill that basically said any improvement on ag land gets the ag rate. So whatever you're doing, all the things you mentioned before, wedding venues, hotels, all of that would just be subject to the ag rate. The bill supporters, they painted this picture of a gigantic assessment increase out of nowhere. This was happening across the state. The state assessors are saying, no way, we're doing everything like we always have. So, you know, that was weird. But the bottom line is, you know, a bill came in to address those issues, those concerns, because, again, you 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 would have concerns if all of a sudden you had a bunch of people showing up and saying, hey, what happened? You know, I got this assessment and all of a sudden my property taxes are jacked up when I haven't really changed anything. I'm doing these small little commercial activities on my farm. This is an accessory use to my active farm. So that was kind of weird, Michael, that back and forth, because we really didn't get an answer as to to what was actually happening there. Yeah, it it, it was it was a, a frustrating element in the policy debate that happened during the, this is the 2022 legislative session. Um, 
I would say like another piece of this was what's been emerging over a number of years has been for, for zoning purposes, lots of counties have been incorporating some sort of definition of this, this term agritourism and basically saying, we want to make sure that some of these things can be allowed in areas that we have zoned for agriculture only. So if you want to have a tasting room or, you know, the little farm store or things along those lines, as long as it's an accessory to a true farm, it's okay for that to appear for zoning purposes in an area that we don't have zoned commercial, it's zoned agricultural. So, you know, a given county might might easily have gone out and changed their zoning laws to try and say, we want to accommodate these kind of activities, not in the downtown commercial area, but out in the rural, undeveloped agricultural area. Well, at some point, you can see, you know, folks saying, well, if this is allowed, it must be farm, and therefore it should be totally taxed like a farm. I, I don't know the truth of all these stories that were conflicting, but I mean, what this gets at is there were there were a fair number of property owners who who have these sort of you know now combined businesses. I run a farm, but I also give horseback riding lessons, and I'll do I'll stable your horse for you, and we also do uh, you know we have a venue for for events and other things like that that are all on this horse farm, there's some back and forth about, are you still just running a horse farm or are you running a horse farm with an adjacent business? And the answer to that question for zoning purposes and for tax assessment purposes is kind of the beach ball we're bandying about here a little bit. Right. And it is important to point out, I mean, counties want to promote this activity and are very interested in in not only preserving farmland, but also making sure that farmers have the income they need. And and again, I don't think there's anyone out there who thinks that selling jam out of a barn, jam that's produced on the farm, is is some commercial activity, Michael. But there were enough legislators that saw a problem here. So I, I kind of previewed last year's bill a little bit, but why don't you jump into it a little bit more and talk about what the bill would have done, and we'll get into sort of the the the, the long road for this legislation and where it ended up. Yeah, I, I think I, I don't have the wording of the original bill sitting right in front of me, but the, the gist of it, I think, for purposes of our listeners, was basically the bill would say assessors should look at all the property, including um, improvements, including a building or a barn or whatever, as long as it's on an active farm. The whole thing should be treated and subjected to this agricultural use assessments. And then it had a sort of laundry list of sorts of things that are all to be included that way. So even if you've got a restaurant or even if you've got a brewery or if you've got uh, an, an event venue or other things along those lines, if it's on a farm, we're just going to assess and tax it at the farm rate, which is artificially low for decades that's been Maryland Maryland policy we're going to officially extend that policy to you know an amphitheater for concerts with 300 people or for a wedding venue for scores and scores of attendees or for a, a wholesale commercial operation not just you know your your daughter sitting out there selling jams and jellies but actually like the entire you know large scale farm store and all sorts of commercial activity and t-shirts and whatever else um, all that stuff should be assessed at the agricultural use rate, which is super low artificially. So that was the first salvo. Bill comes in to say whatever is on a farm, and here's a long list of included things, all that stuff should be artificially assessed at that low rate. 
And and of course, like the reason we're talking about this, Michael, is because counties have a big stake here. And it's not just because of property tax revenue. You mentioned earlier that is the biggest source of revenue. But we also talked about fairness, Michael, and there was a lot of concern there as well. I, I think so. I mean, there, there's more to this than just the counties saying, oh, dear, all of this stuff would depress the assessments on a bunch of different properties. And that would mean we'd have to go back and raise taxes on everybody else so that we can continue to fund schools and roads and public safety and all the things the county needs to do. Now, that's that's part of our message that you need to have. You know, you need to have a reasonable and fair tax base so that everybody contributes to the revenue stream. But but also like this idea of somebody wants to set up a business and, you know, you get the idea, well, as long as it's attached to a farm in some way, I'm going to get this huge tax break. You could end up with a really weird incentive to start relocating lots of things out of your targeted growth area, right? We've been, we've been trying to focus, you know, using smart growth techniques. We want to focus development in target areas. Here's our downtown in the municipality. That's a smart growth area. We have another area where we've got some capacity for water and sewer. We want more activity over there. We've got an enterprise zone over here. We're trying to give opportunities in that area. So there's incentives in place for that. But now along comes, Hey, build your giant restaurant out here in the middle of nowhere in this farm, and you basically get a zero tax bill or close to it, that's a really weird economic development, you know, disincentive. You know, don't go where we're trying to bring the business growth, go out here to the farm, and suddenly there'll be way more traffic on those roads and a lot more people running around and so forth in an area that nobody thought we were supposed to be having big growth. Right, and that's certainly goes against the goal of preservation, right? I mean, that that could encourage folks to buy up ag land just to get the tax break on commercial activity. Certainly, that would remove local input. And I don't think uh, that was ultimately the intent of the bill. So MAKO met with stakeholders to find a solution because that's what we do, right? We met with a bunch of stakeholders and we had extensive meetings. And Michael, we, we, we got to some agreement and you know we thought things were moving in the right direction. Yeah, I I I think you're right. I I don't think anybody set out to try and create a new tax scheme in Maryland that would be a huge cash giveaway to giant businesses that just come out and annex your property to some farm and you'll be you know you know, you you get you get a giant tax discount. I don't think that was really the motivation here. I think everybody was coming at this issue in good faith. That led us to a framework that that seemed pretty productive. The idea of saying, okay, let's let's have the cart and horse aligned properly here. And if we can divine a set of activities that are truly like I like that word accessory to a farm, right? It's a farm first and then there's some other things that are happening on and around the farm. So this isn't going to be a giant brewery and restaurant that has one row of tomato plants out back, and now that's the farm, right? If it's an active use farm and the other items are accessories or are ancillary part of the overall enterprise, and they're consistent with what the local government has said are reasonable activities in the area zone for agriculture, now you got something. Now that's where we could draw the line and say that should qualify as a working farm, independent of it may have some income producing potential that's a little different than the 1950s or 1980s. 
Right. And so that compromise passed out of the Maryland Senate, multiple references to Mako's agreement. We thought it was on the way. Later in the House, though, questions were raised on whether this differentiation in assessments, uh, i.e. a building in the ag zone versus an identical building in a nearby commercial zone, violated the uniformity clause in the state constitution. And Michael, that sounds like a perfect issue to tee you up on. Talk about that. What is the uniformity clause and why did that come into play here? It's actually, this is in the Constitution. It's in the Maryland Declaration of Rights. And the, the wording is kind of, you know, decades old and a little bit lofty, but it's basically saying you shouldn't have preferential treatment within a class of property. So you shouldn't have a process that favors your friends or the folks on this side of town versus that side of town. You shouldn't have something that's inherently discriminatory against a type of business or certain kinds of people or owners or whatever. So it's a good principle, right? The idea of everybody should assess the property in a fair and uniform manner. That leads to a legal interpretation on how much latitude does the state legislature have in creating uh, sort of determinations like this, in guiding how the professional assessors should go out and value property when they see it. And this bill was saying for agricultural property, here's a whole set of special rules and guidelines and standards for how you value this, but not that and so forth. Eventually, I I think, you know, the, the office of the attorney general, they sometimes weigh in on legislation either after it's been passed or in this case, before it's been passed and say, you know, we think this wording is actually going to run afoul if if it were challenged in court, it would probably run afoul of this principle in the Constitution. So what we thought was a pretty sensible way to to define this law and sort of buff up the agricultural use assessment process needs some more work because we, we started to create a whole new peninsula of how assessors deal with property in one group but not other similarly situated groups. So somebody who's downtown and owns a brewery and somebody else who has a farm that doesn't have any of these accessory uses, and then somebody else who has a farm that has a small brewery on it. If you create differentials among those different groups of property, you may have a constitutional problem. That's what the AG and the staff and the House of Delegates concluded. And we worked pretty hard to try and sort this out, amend the bill to resolve those issues Ultimately, we weren't able to get it to the finish line and get this thing with a bow on it. Right. So it came back and tried to work with the supporters, um, tried to create new subclasses of property to make it work legally. Again, we thought we threaded the needle, but it, it didn't it didn't work. So you mentioned in the final days, the professional staff to the Ways and Means Committee said even the final version of the bill is still unconstitutional. Caution prevailed here, Michael. The bill gets sent to a study to look into how this stuff gets done. And that's where we are. Right. And that's not a it's not a terrible outcome to to spend some time and bring stakeholders together when you're not in the heat of the legislative session. And you may have time to convene a handful of times. And like maybe we can get to the bottom of some of these stories. Right. We we heard property owners and and their their lobbyists and their representatives you know talk about these stories of hey i'm doing exactly the same thing i've been doing for the last 15 years and my latest assessment just more than doubled and what the heck is going on it seems like 
you know, the person who came out and assessed my property just suddenly decided they have a different idea of what the law is and what my property's worth. And that seems totally unfair. Meanwhile, I feel like we were hearing from the State Department of Assessments and Taxation and from their professional staff, no, we've been doing this stuff the same way all the time. If somebody got a dramatic change in in his or her assessment, it's got to be because they're engaging in different activities than they were before, or they have a new structure or new physical space for these sorts of things. And that's what we have decided to assess as commercial rather than agricultural. So like, that's the sort of thing that was tough to untangle the two sides of the same story back in February and March and early April, but maybe you can do that in October and November a little better. Right. And so all the stakeholders at the table in the interim trying to hammer this stuff out, I agree. It makes sense to do that outside of those 90 days, which are hectic. And I do think, Michael, there is a, a needle thread here. I do think that, you know, for people who have a, an active farm that is in use and they want to do something that is an accessory use, I also like that term, of course, you know, supplement your income. Things are tough. And if you want to do things that, you know, are, are not maybe traditionally uh, ag, you know, like plowing fields or whatnot, if you want to have a corn maze or if you want to sell some of the products that are made on the farm, of course, I think that should absolutely be allowed and we shouldn't assess that as commercial activity. But we've gotten into the point that when you get into these larger structures that certainly look and feel like commercial activity, you have to draw a line somewhere. So I'm pretty confident that we can get to a point uh, where there'll be a bill next year that everybody can sign off on. And that's the point here. That's what we do in Maryland. We compromise, we work together. And I think we're going to see a good outcome here at the end of the day. I'm optimistic as well, just just because I'm sold that there's a pretty common sense middle ground here. So however you have to write it, and however you have to define things, and maybe maybe this takes a more structured uh, development of a new class of property for agriculture or whatever. But you can you can do those things, you know, through a bill. So I think, given some time and some effort, the stakeholders here want to get want to get an outcome that's good for the property owners. And I think the local governments want kind of the same thing. That if we get clarity, that makes it clear that. We still through, you know, whoever is doing zoning in the area still gets to determine what what are allowed activities and structures within places that are zoned for agriculture and then probably building off those limits. So that that puts some discretion in the hands of your local government officials, which we're going to like. And I think that's going to keep your neighborhood character and your agricultural preservation character intact. But the activities like that then that's fine. As long as it's farm first, other stuff as a supporting or ancillary part of the farm, then I, I think there's a good common sense bill ground here. I'm optimistic a good bill can pass this year. Same here. And I think we can leave it there. Again, this is an issue where you see these issues pop up that don't necessarily fit into traditional laws or policies, and you have to sort of adjust things on the fly. And that's what it's all about. All right, we'll leave it there for today. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all of these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and then, of course, our Conduit Street blog. But for our producer, Victoria Moss, and for Michael Sanderson, this is Kevin Canale signing off, and we will talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.